0: The way that faith can be twisted to support such a heinous belief is really where the danger of using religion in government comes from.
1: Hi, I'm Allison. And I'm Sandhya. And this is The Universal Group a podcast where we, two Generation Z Asian American teenagers, strive to share our perspectives by exploring issues that not only affect us, but our audience as well.
0: This week, we are going to be talking about religion, religious appropriation, and a little bit about cultural appropriation as well. So my family is
1: Hindu, which is a really popular religion in India. And my family does not really affiliate with any religious organization. My maternal great-grandpa was Christian, but My grandparents um, on both sides, they both believe in like ancestors and like the afterlife and, you know, like burning incense and giving them stuff, but don't really associate with anything. There are varying beliefs in what Hinduism is,
0: but I really believe in the supreme being, which is Om, the Om symbol. And the energy and the like supreme being of that Om symbol is manifested in different versions of the god. So therefore, like, I don't think that Hinduism is polytheistic. I believe that it is a monotheistic religion. The main points of my religion, there's basically the four sacred texts, um, which are the Vedas. I believe in reincarnation, which if you don't maintain a good sense of dharma or righteous conduct, you can get reincarnated for another chance at life. And then when you maintain good karma in that life, you achieve moksha, which is basically liberation for your soul from the cycle of rebirth. There are famous stories which teach us morals in my religion. We have the Ramayana, which I think everyone learns, the Mahabharata, which is another tale, and a small one that I really remember um, and hold close to my heart is basically Ganesha and Karthikeya, they're two brothers. Parvati has this divine fruit. They're, she, uh, she's their mother. And she says the first person to circle around the world three times and come back first gets the fruit. So Karthikeya, his vehicle is a peacock and Ganesha's is a mouse. So Karthike quickly gets on his peacock and he starts circling the world. But Ganesha, he gets on his mouse and he circles his parents three times and comes back. And he says, you guys are my world. And he gets the fruit first because, you know, that was his world. It was a subjective term. And I just remember that story a lot just because it's those kinds of fables that are Kind of staples of my religion, and have taught me throughout the years different morals.
1: next, we wanted to talk about how religion and culture um, and where they intersect so first a little bit of statistical evidence, according to the Pew research center thirty percent thirty two percent of people in the world are christians twenty three percent Muslims fifteen percent Hindus. Um, 7% are Buddhist, 0.2% are Jews, and around 6% practice various folk or traditional religions, and finally 16% have no religious affiliation. And so the reason why these numbers are so high is because, of course, over time, history, as people have evolved, we believe in different deities and things, but also they've impacted our culture and how we live our daily lives. A lot of our practices Um, How we live our morals even are impacted by religion and how we choose to be ourselves. Yeah, there are a lot of
0: superstitions, I think, that have religious roots. An example of how religion has kind of infiltrated into common culture is the reciting the incantation, bless you after someone has sneezed. When you sneeze, it was believed that your soul was separating from the body. And to stop Satan from getting your soul, people would say, bless you, because that would prevent your soul being taken into the clutches of Satan. It became a practice around the time of the Great Plague because sneezing was one of the first symptoms you saw. And saying bless you was in a way, just saying, like, God bless you, go to heaven, I'm sorry you're dying, kind of thing. That's just one example, and there's also other superstitions. Like, I know that I am not supposed to cut my hair at night, I think, and I'm not supposed to cut my hair on Fridays, and there are certain foods that I shouldn't eat, there are certain religious things that I can do based on my caste, which in India is a big thing. We all have castes and my family is of a higher caste. And so therefore I'm allowed to do, my brothers, not me, are allowed to do something called a punal. People who aren't Brahmin are not allowed to do this this ceremony, which I kind of find to be an elitist part of my religion, which I don't really like. Morals are definitely taught through religious stories and religious religious aspects of um, Hinduism are always portrayed in film, books, and TV. Like I remember always learning about the Ramayana or the Mahabharata in film, and those morals carry around everywhere. And they are seen in children's books. They're seen in uh, various different things.
1: Now we wanted to talk about religion and maybe a more controversial context, especially in America where we are protected to practice our own religions under our own free will. Um, So there's this thing known as religious discrimination and according to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, it defines uh, defines these religious beliefs as theistic as well as non-theistic moral or ethical beliefs about right and wrong that are sincerely held within the strength of traditional religious view. And so in terms of employment, this means that an employer cannot deny opportunities or employment because of one's religious affiliations or what they identify with, and so protected by Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, it's a federal law that protects employees against discrimination based on specific characteristics, race, color, sex, and in this situation, religion. And so Title VII requires federal agencies, upon notice of request, to reasonably accommodate employees whose sincerely held religious beliefs, practices, or observances conflict with work requirements. Unless the accommodation would create an undue hardship. And this can kind of be a muddy area because, you know, what is a reasonable accommodation? What is an undue hardship? And so an undue hardship in their context is kind of defined as something that, you know, would disrupt, heavily disrupt workflow, that would, you know, change the course of a business, or big things. But overall, Title VII is encouraging people to be non-discriminatory because being biased against someone of a certain religion is ultimately blocking out a whole group of ideas and a whole group of people that we all need to be experiencing with and in this case if an employer or a co-worker does violate title seven it is considered harassment and harassment is illegal yeah
0: this luxury though doesn't extend to all of the world because I know as a country India has historically persecuted Indian Muslims and it's so sad to know that and to know that about my country We ourselves were put down for our religion, and now we are putting another group down, especially since they have been marginalized ever since 9-11 across the globe with this rampant Islamophobia. I can't believe that people suffer based on who they believe in. If anything, spirituality should really bond us together because we all believe in some kind of force, uh, whether it's just Christ or Om or uh, Allah, and regardless of what the name is, there is a force looking out for us and making sure we're, all, we're doing all right. If we all have a God watching out for us, why should we be tearing each other apart based on a difference in name or prayer if our spirituality truly motivates us to do what we believe is right and instill such great morals
1: in us? Oh, Sonia kind of talked about 9-11 and I just kind of wanted to expand on that. Um, a lot of times Back in America, we think that we are so protected and, you know, religious discrimination is going down. But one of the most defining moments that I think a lot of Americans will never forget is 9-11 and especially the aftermath for that for Arab Americans, Muslims, and South Asian Americans. Um, According to the Department of Justice, there were over 800 uh, reported incidents since 9-11, including violence threats, vandalism, and arson. And so it just shows that we always tend to overgeneralize religion as much we do culture because it's so easy to point the blame on someone. It's so easy to, you know, say this person did it and not take into account that People are changing, and people are different, and we can't group all Americans in one place, just as we can't, you know, group all Muslims into, you know, this whole terrorist idea.
0: There are such good principles in every religion, and if you truly look, like God is all trying to motivate us to do the right thing in the world, and for people to be tearing each other down because of possibly what motivates them, it's it's very confusing. Um, So now we also wanted to talk about a little bit of personal struggles for me I come from a religious family and I've always been in temple and all these different kinds of things And I've seen some things that I don't agree with in my own religion and in my own culture So my struggle with religion really uh, started after my grandfather died from ALS It was about when I was 10 and I always looked at the world through a pair of rose-colored glasses and I always thought good people will do great in life and God's watching out for them and they're going to give them the best thing. But seeing my grandfather go as he did, it kind of hurt my view of God. I didn't believe that there was a supreme being who could put such a loving person through that. It just shook my beliefs a little bit. I don't think that I've still fully recovered from that, but I'm trying my best to find my own definition of God and this kind of idea of how he's looking out for us, how he or she is looking out for us. I also didn't like the limitations there are on women in Hinduism. I'm of a different generation than, say, my grandparents are, who are extremely religious, so I believe that a woman should be able to do everything a man can in in terms of being in society, culture, religion, everything. One specific experience comes to mind. So there's this thing that we do. We light candles on an altar. And at the top of the altar, there is a figure or a picture of Ayipa, which is one of our gods. What My grandpa and my dad usually light the candles up to the altar. Being a little child, I wasn't allowed to play with fire. So one time when I was older, my grandpa was really struggling. And I told my grandma, I will go and help him. And she said, no, like you can't. It's mainly for the men. And it just, I did not understand. Like, how can you, because I'm a woman, I can't light a candle. Like, it doesn't make sense to me. There's also this idea that you can't go into the temple when you're on your period. You're seen as kind of impure or unclean because you're on your period, which also makes no sense to me because periods are a natural thing. They're part of the cycle of life. So if anything, they should be revered. It's a thing about a woman that you cannot deny and you should not shame. And so for me to be shut out of the temple because I'm seen as impure, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. And I know that women in the past in our, my religion have struggled a lot more than I have. Being in America, I think we're we tend to be more progressive in my religion and i'm very thankful for that but i still think that we have a long way to go this also has kind of shook my beliefs because i didn't think that women could be so limited in my religion i like that we have women gods and they're empowering to see but then to treat their devotees like we are it just doesn't make sense like why should we be limited because we're women like i should be able to show the same extent of worship as my male counterparts. Yeah, these the inequality for women and just coming to grips with how God fits into my life. I think it's a journey that everyone goes through regardless of what faith you're you're a part of. I think that that's just one aspect of my life that I need to grow a little bit more.
1: Yeah. um, And I guess I'll kind of tie in where I feel like although my family isn't really religious and they don't really have like a name for what they believe in, I'd say also in Chinese culture in general, we have this tendency or they have this tendency to, you know, prefer sons over daughters. And like Sonia said, living in America, I'm so fortunate to, you know, be treated equally and fairly as much as a lot better than my ancestors before but it is in Chinese culture it's like oh like you have a son like whenever like a woman says she's pregnant they're like oh it's a son like it's gonna be like a good son You know, like having daughters, it's not really like, oh, uh, like, it's just still congratulations. Like you have a kid, but it's always like, oh, daughters are a burden. You have to teach them how how to cook, how to clean. You have to marry them off. You have to give the husband's family something. Like it's almost as if they're raised to be given away. They're not raised as something to be kept, to be precious. I definitely seen it in my family sometimes when we go back you know sometimes my brother like it's more privileges also he's younger than me so I don't know if I can fully account it to him being um, a male but I definitely know that when we talk about our ancestors it's always like oh the son does this the son does that. It's
0: kind of this idea of being the accessory rather than the whole outfit and I mean I would never mm-hmm. like to be an accessory I just want to be the whole outfit. It's <laughs> I really hate that that idea has kind of transferred over and it's limited me in my worship a little bit because these ideas about women, they're changing, but we also have to transfer that change into religion, which I don't think is a common practice to adapt religion to the changing times. It would be really cool to see that not just in, you know, Christianity, but also in Hindu Americans.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, And I think, you know, part of the reason why change can be so hard in religion and it's because religion has a very deep history and a lot of it is written down. A lot of it is scripted and documented. So almost changing can seem like it's going against, you know, what you believe in. But I think it's important that as all things all cultures all things in life you know they grow and they adapt and of course there's going to be critics about this and but it's important that we realize we should not let something like religion be a hindrance and we shouldn't make it taboo to talk about changing because the reason why um some of us or most of us believe in a divine subject is because it gives us a path to follow and Mm -hmm. i think we should Well, not we should, but I believe that divine path is good. And so if we want the best, then maybe we should, you know, think about how we can adapt. Exactly.
0: So now we wanted to talk about religious appropriation and in a way, cultural appropriation. Uh, So personally, I think that people have always viewed my religion as something that augments my exoticness. I talked about this in a few episodes earlier, but I really hate the word exotic because it's putting me outside the box of normal. I think people view my religion as something that puts me outside of the box as normal because it isn't as common in America to be Hindu as it is to be, you know, Christian, Catholic, all those other things. There are really few religions learned about with polytheistic gods and they portray Hinduism as one of them, even though I believe that we aren't really polytheistic, we're kind of monotheistic, but um, people think that that is so like abnormal, I guess. And it adds to the whole like, oh wow, you're so exotic. You believe in, you know, multiple gods and you're also like brown. (laughs) It, it kind of further alienates me from the rest of my school counterparts and peers who are, like who whose ancestry are white, who are Catholic or Christian, and kind of just seem to be part of the majority in America. In reality, there are similarities between say what I practice and what a Christian practices. For example, there are people who go to temple regularly, just like people go to church regularly. I used to go to Sunday school or Balabihar every sunday and we have important holidays that we celebrate as a community at the temple just like services at church so our practices really aren't that different other than we're honoring something at a different time or we believe that this god represents a different thing than christians do a few more modern culture references is um, the gentrification of yoga over the years yoga has become a popular practice in america and i'm all for it i love yoga And this is in no way me gatekeeping yoga, but there are problems with the practice of yoga. So yoga originated over 5,000 years ago, and it's mentioned in the oldest sacred text, the Rig Veda, and it was used by Brahmins to just like practice, and it was a meditative practice. Um, So yoga became popularized in the U.S., in the 1960s and it was kind of westernized it became a profession which capitalized the practice of yoga which is so sacred to indians it was counterintuitive to everything that yoga stands for to for it to be profited off of and sold as a profession and something that's trendy and companies like lululemon and nike they were profiting off of yoga clothes and we're really just selling out yoga for their own gains, which is, again, counterintuitive to everything that yoga stands for, as it is such a revered practice amongst Brahmins and is used to calm the soul and to just meditate and really get closer to God. And it's mainly geared towards white women now because of this westernization of the practice in America. It's really become a problem because these white women don't fully understand the magnitude of what they're saying in these classes. Like, hold your hands to your third eye, open your heart center, align your chakras, like that kind of thing. They don't understand the implications behind it. And without in-depth research into these topics and explaining it to the people practicing in your classes, you can't use yoga as a way to profit when you aren't bringing authenticity to it. Even then, because all these women are white, we're lacking in diversity amongst yoga teachers. I rarely see brown people teaching yoga, and that has become a problem, especially since it is originating from their culture and they might have a better understanding without having to do the research. Yoga was separated by its culture in the court case of Sedlock versus Baird, and the court ruled basically that yoga can be taught because. Its religious aspects were stripped away from it, therefore it was okay to be taught in public schools. And because the history originates from the religious aspects of yoga, you cannot just strip away that with and maintain authenticity and actually say that you're teaching yoga. In reality, you're just teaching a bunch of stretches if you don't go into the religious and meditative practices involved in yoga we basically have to decolonize yoga. And that's a long road that's going to be taken, but it requires a lot of research to be done by yoga teachers. It requires more brown people being led into those yoga classrooms. And it is a long journey, but I think for the sake of the religion and for the many benefits that come from the religious aspects of yoga, we must take that journey.
1: Next, I kind of just wanted to talk about one of probably the most hated symbols in the world um now the swastika um so the swastika as we know it it was a symbol of you know hitler and the nazis and fascism but it actually has a history that's you know a lot of people don't know and so um the swastika is it means well-being um means good fortune and things like that And, and it's been used by hindus buddhists for over a millennia, and it's, you know, commonly seen to be an Indian sign. And so back in the day, Coca-Cola used it. Um, the Boys and Girl Scouts used it. And they called a magazine like the swastika. And they, you know, hand, hand out swastika badges because it was like, a, it was a good thing. It was. It's seen as
0: light and happiness. I see it around my temple. Obviously, this, the swastika that I know is um, a little bit modified mm-hmm. that the Nazis used it um it's not, it doesn't look the exact same. So, um, there are differences, but I always see it at my temple. And the first time I saw it, I was like, mommy, why is there a Nazi symbol? And she (laughs) said, no, it's not a Nazi symbol. It's meant as happiness, joy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so how the swastika became one of the most, you know, notorious signs in the world is that the Nazis use the swastika, um, Because 19th century German scholars were translating old Indian texts and they noticed similarities between their own language and Sanskrit, and so then they concluded that Indians and Germans must have a a shared ancestry and imagine like a race of white godlike warriors that they called the Aryans. And so then the idea was seized upon by the anti Semitic nationalist groups, and then they appropriated the swastika as an Aryan symbol to to boost a sense of ancient lineage for the Germanic people. And so now that really ended up changing the meaning of the swastika and you know if we go back in history we can see that the ancient greeks used swastikas they embroidered them um you know on cloth and they're in like sculptures and everything because the symbol has been perverted so much it's now a negative symbol that's associated with pain for a lot of people in this world and i think in one way or another this kind of connects to Um, what we're talking about religion, because we need to be aware of, in this case, such a good symbol that was used to mean such prosperous things was then translated and transferred into something so harmful. So if you aren't aware of a symbol and you see something, um, like Sandy said, when she went into, you know, a temple for the first time and she saw it, it's important that we recognize that you may not understand the full history. And I think a lot of times I could You know, hate crimes come from stuff like this because people don't understand the history of religion and symbols and only know their superficial knowledge. That actually brings me into
0: a little bit more of how um, Hinduism was used in Nazi culture. So there was a woman and her name was Maximani Portas, but she later converted to Hinduism and adopted the name Savitri Devi and also was a European devotee of Hitler. So she sailed to India in search of a living version of Europeans' pagan past and was convinced that the caste system in India was preserving the Aryan race because you could not marry outside of your caste. And so she believed that Germans and, or the Aryan race and Indians with their caste system, they were very alike and combined with the Sanskrit and German similarities she believed that she could find answers there. She also was in contact with the former Ku Klux Klan leader named David Duke, who also visit- visited India in the 1970s and shared her misconception of Indians being Aryans because of the caste system. So basically what Savitri Devi believed, she wrote this in a book, I think. She believed that Hitler was an avatar of Vishnu, essentially equaling him to God, saying that he was going to bring an end to the Kali Yuga. And the Kali Yuga is believed to be a period of darkness that we are experiencing right now, and we're waiting for the next avatar of Vishnu to usher in a new golden age, essentially. And she believed that Hitler was that avatar. And she wrote that in the book and basically justified what he was doing because she believed that he was God. And those misconceptions and the way that faith can be twisted to support such a heinous belief is really where the danger of using religion in government comes from. And I think that we see it a lot in modern day with, for example, the religious implications in homophobia. Uh, religious opposition to abortion, believing that it's murder and the religious implications with having an abortion. There's a lot of these kinds of ideas and I think it's why our government is separated from the church. But just seeing examples in history and seeing how those kind of, those religious beliefs transfer into government and play a role in history is really terrifying because faith, which is so like believed to be inherently good, it's shown to have propagated these bad people.
1: Finally, we just wanted to do our Rice of the Episode.
0: Yes, so we chose the Rice of the Episode to be Pungal, and Pungal actually has a sentimental value to me, because every time I go to temple they do this thing where they give it give you kind of a box lunch if it's a really long puja or ceremony or something and pongol is always in there because it is basically prasadam it is basically rice with cashews and other kinds of like spices in it i like to eat it with gotsu which is us basically a sauce um kind of like sambar that i put on top of it with vegetables yeah it's really yummy <laughs> I really like it, and Pongol is so versatile, it can be made a bunch of different ways, and it tastes good, I think, every single way that it's made. I was actually talking with my brother the other day, and we were talking about where Indian rices are in our top (laughs) ten, and I said that Pongol is probably my second, so
1: everyone should try it. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I will definitely have to look into it and get some of this myself just as versatile as the dishes i think it really connects to religion you know we all interpret our deities in different ways but at the end of the day you know we all want to follow the good path and you know in this case have some good food exactly (laughs) um with that being said thank you so much for listening to our episode and we'll see you in number five